Welcome to the podcast, How to Live Life the Way You Want It. My name is Adam New, and today I will be talking about how to be happy. Today I'll be talking about the mind and how to be happy, how to be happy in your everyday life. Now, happiness comes often from within. Now, today we're going to learn about how to tame negative thoughts and approach every day of optimism, making our everyday life happy. The first point I want to touch on is to how to conquer negative thinking. All humans have a tendency to be a bit more like Aeor than Tigger, to ruminate more on bad experiences than positive ones. It's an evolutionary adaptation over learning from the dangerous or hurtful situations we often encounter through life, bullying, trauma, betrayal, and this helps us avoid them in the future and react quickly in a crisis. But that means you have to work a little harder to train your brain to conquer negative thoughts. Here's how. Don't try to stop negative thoughts. Telling yourself, I have to stop thinking about this, only makes you think about it more. Instead, own your worries, own up to it. When you are in a negative cycle, acknowledge it. I'm worrying about money. I'm assessing about problems at work. The next thing I would advise is to treat yourself like a friend. When you are feeling negative about yourself, ask yourself, what advice would you give a friend who is down on herself or himself? Now try to apply that advice to yourself. Next, you got to challenge your negative thoughts. Questions, Socratic questions, is the process of challenging and changing irrational thoughts. Some studies show that this method can reduce depression symptoms. The goal is to get you from a negative mindset, oh, I'm a failure, to a more positive one. Oh, I've had a lot of success in my career. This is just one setback that doesn't reflect on me at all. I can learn from it and be better. Here are some examples of questions you can ask yourself to challenge negative thinking. First, write down your negative thoughts, such as, I'm having problems at work and I'm questioning my abilities. Then ask yourself, what is the evidence for this thought? Am I basing this on facts or feelings? Can I be misinterpreting the situation? How might other people view the situation differently? How might I view the situation if it happened to someone else? The bottom line is, negative thinking happens to all of us. But if we recognize it and challenge that thinking, we are taking a big step forward towards a happier life, which everyone wants. Now, the next thing to have a happier life would be controlled breathing. Science is just beginning to provide evidence that benefits of this ancient practice are actually real. Studies have found, for example, that breathing practices can help reduce symptoms associated with anxiety, insomnia, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and attention deficit disorder. For centuries, yogis have used breath control or pranayama to promote concentration and improve vitality. Buddha even advocated breath med- uh, meditation as a way to reach enlightenment. My advice to you for this one is to just try it. Every morning or at night, just relax. Forget all your thoughts. Sit there for one minute. It could be one minute. It could be five minutes. It could be 15 minutes. Just sit there. Close your eyes. Don't think about anything, you know, at school, work, you know, in your life. Just try to, just try to relax. Do it for a few days, do it for a few weeks, and you'll see the benefits coming out because, you know, science says. Now, the next tip I would give you is to rewrite your story. What does this mean? 
Writing about oneself and personal experiences and then rewriting a story can lead to behavioral changes and actually improve happiness. We already know that expressive writing can improve mood disorders and help reduce symptoms among cancer patients, among other health benefits. Some research suggests that writing in a personal journal for just 15 minutes a day can lead to a boost in overall happiness and well-being, in part because it allows us to express our emotions, be mindful of our circumstances, and resolve inner conflicts. Or you can take the next step and focus on one particular challenge you face and write and rewrite that story. Take just honestly take a notebook, even if you can't do 15 minutes a day, write one thing in the morning or one thing after your day at work or at school that you want, that, that you dream, that something that makes you happy and rewrite it and then picture yourself in that story. We all have a personal narrative that shapes our view of the world and ourselves, but sometimes our inner voice doesn't get it right. By writing and then editing our own stories, we change the perceptions of ourselves and identify obstacles to stand in a way of personal well-being. This process is similar to Socratic questioning. Here's a writing exercise. Write a brief story about your struggle. For example, I'm having money problems or I'm having a hard time making friends in a new city, or I'm never going to find love, or I'm fighting with my spouse. Now, write a new story from the viewpoint of a neutral observer, or with the kind of encouragement you give to a friend. For example, money is a challenge, but you can take steps to get yourself in financial shape. Or, everyone struggles in the first year in your city. Give some time, join some groups, join some clubs. Don't focus on finding love. Focus on meeting new people and having fun. The rest will follow. And lastly, couples argue. Here's what your situation looks like to a neutral observer. Numerous studies show that writing and rewriting a story can move you out of your negative mindset and into a more positive view of life. The idea here is getting people to come to terms with who they are, where they want to go, said James Pennybaker, a psychology professor at the University of Texas, who has pioneered much of the research on expressive writing. I think of expressive writing, expressive writing, sorry, as a life course correction. Now, my next tip would be to get moving. When people get up and move, even a little, they actually tend to be a bit happier than when they still are, when they're like not moving at all. You might not notice it, but if you think about, you know, doing sports, getting up, walking, running, you actually find yourself thinking about, you know, the future, something that you want to do, it actually makes you happier, uh, happier. A study that tracked the movement and moods of cell phone users found that people reported the most happiness if they had been moving in the past 15 minutes than when they had been sitting or lying down. Most of it, most of the time, it wasn't rigorous activity, but just gentle walking that left them in a good mood. Of course, we don't know if moving makes you happy or if happy people just move more. But we do know that more activity goes hand in hand with a better health and greater happiness. So why not put down your phone every day for, you know, at least five minutes, get up, take a walk, grab a drink of water, look outside, and just think. After a while, this thinking will make you even more happier because you'll think of something happy. You'll think of something, a dream you want to do, something you know you, you want to have for your birthday. If you just think, moving around will make that a lot easier, and you'll be overall more happy. Another thing I would say is to practice optimism. Optimism is part of, you no, know, it's, it's like, it's 
genetics. It's part learned, part genetics. Even if you're born into a family of gloomy gooses, you can still find your inner ray of sunshine. Optimism doesn't mean ignoring the reality of a dire situation. After a job loss, for instance, many people might just feel defeated and think, oh, I'll never cover for this, you know, I can't do anything right. But an optimist would acknowledge the challenge in a more hopeful way, saying, this is going to be difficult, but it's a chance to rethink my life goals and find work that truly makes you happy. And thinking positive thoughts and surrounding yourself with positive people really does help. Optimism, like pessimism, can be infectious. So make a point to hang out with optimistic people. Now we're at this point to think, okay, of course being happy is good. But why, you know, how, how, how important really is being happy? So to sort of phrase this argument, I think that you have to think of the question, what is the meaning of life? I know it's a very vague question, and people have been arguing that for centuries, you know, places, religions all over the world. But from my point of view, I think that being happy, to live until, you know, to live this life, why are you on this earth? It's not to work every day and be sad every day and live out pain every day. Is that is that something that you want to take advantage of? You could be happy, do the things you want. As long as you're, whatever you're doing is something that you want to do, something that you're passionate about, you know, whatever, collecting cards, looking at trees, looking at birds, whatever you're passionate about, whatever you want to do, as long as you're happy, that's that's the way to live life. Some people I've heard at like 50, 60 year olds, they think that, oh, um, my life is, you know, sort of over, I can relax now, but they still have, you know, almost 40 years, 50 years ahead of them that they can spend to be happy and do whatever they want. If they weren't happy the first part of their lives, they can, you know, turn that all around and rewrite their own story, like I said before. Be optimistic. Think of something that makes you happy. Think of something you're passionate. Start early and live life the way you want to live life. Now, let's talk about happiness in terms of, like, work and money. So this is pretty controversial, but... The bottom line is that more money won't necessarily make you happier, but finding meaningful work and a little extra time will. What do I mean by that? Money doesn't buy you happiness. A quote, something you've probably heard many, many times. But what does it actually mean? We know you probably don't believe us. So tell us, what do you think will make you happy? More money? Bigger house? Dream job? Maybe. Most of the time, what we think will make us happy actually won't. Studies show that happiness doesn't come from more money or more stuff. Even lottery winners are not happier than those of us who never win anything. Of course, truly poor people are happier with more money because they don't have to worry about getting enough to eat, be home, or paying for medicine. But once people escape poverty and achieve a middle class or slightly higher lifestyle, more money does not result in significantly more happiness. The constant quest for things we don't have is called the hedonic treadmill. What does this mean? It means that when we get what we want, like money, job, love, a house, we get a burst of happiness, a small burst. But when we quickly settle back to our pre- previous level of happiness and then start thinking about the next thing that will make us happy, it's it's a never-ending cycle. So you'd have to find purpose at work or school. So to take work, for example, we would like to complain about work, 
but it plays an important role in our happiness. Work, even the most mundane work, helps us feed our families, put roofs over our heads, and connect with other people. Ideally, we'll find work that has meaning to us, but not everybody can quit their day job and pursue charity work or join Teach for America. As a result, it's important that we find ways to find meaning in our day, everyday work. Studies show that we get satisfaction from all kinds of work, not just our dream job. Yale researchers studied custodians who worked in a hospital. Far from seeing the drudgery of their jobs, the janitors had unofficially broadened their definition of hospital custodial work. Many of them viewed their work as including providing comfort to patients, helping families find their way around the hospital, and providing a clean, pleasant environment for doctors and nurses to do their work and for patients to heal. It's, it's not about the image of who you are, you know, the insecurities that you might be hiding based on, you know, that you might be hiding with money or what job you have, you know, your social status, but you have to be true to yourself, whatever kinds of work that you're passionate and you love doing, you love helping people, you see, you see people getting better because of you, you see people understanding things, getting around because of you that they wouldn't have been able to done if not for you, that, if that makes you happy, then that's, no matter what job it is, that's truly, like, something that you should go towards. Even people, for example, who do, like, telephone solicitation, viewed by many as the bottom of the career ladder, can often find satisfaction at work. Warden, uh, UPenn Warden, Professor Adam Grant arranged for a student to talk about the difference his scholarship made to his life. After the talk, the phone solicitors hired to raise money for the school scholarship fund raised almost double the amount as they had before. The work and pay hadn't changed, but what had? Their sense of purpose changed. In a column about why you hate work by Christine Porath, a Georgetown professor, uh, found that jobs that make us happiest are those that include four characteristics, renewal, value, focus, and purpose. Let's talk about renewal first. Employees who take a break every 90 minutes report a 30% higher level of focus than those who take no breaks or just one during the day. Those who report a nearly 50% greater capacity to think creatively and 46% higher level of health and well-being. The more hours people work beyond 40 and the more continuously they work, the worse they feel and the less engaged they become. By contrast, feeling encouraged by one supervisor to take breaks increases by nearly 100% people's likelihood to stay within any given company and also doubles their sense of health and well-being. Talk about value. Feeling cared for by one supervisor has a much more significant impact on people's sense of trust and safety than any other behavior by a leader. Employees who say they are more supportive uh, supervisors are 1.3 times more likely to stay with the organization and 67% more engaged. You know, stats talk. To talk about focus, only 20% of respondents said they were able to focus on one task at a time. But those who could were 50% more engaged. Similarly, only one-third of respondents said they were able to effectively prioritize, prioritize tasks. But those who didn't who those who did were 1.6 times better able to focus on one thing at a time. Finally, on the factor of purpose, employees who derive meaning and significance from their work were more than three times as likely to stay within their organizations. The highest single impact of any variable in our survey. These employees reported 
you know, 1.7 times higher job satisfaction, and they were 1.4 times more engaged at work. So buying time promotes happiness. What this means is that when you're deciding how to spend your money, considering buying some more time. You know, people say, oh, buy those new shoes, buy the new car, buy the new house. What about time? Time is so valuable. Harvard researchers found that spending money on convenience items and time-saving services can actually help lower stress and make us happier. In two surveys of more than 6,000 people in the U.S., Canada, Denmark, and the Netherlands, researchers found that when people spent money to save time, such as ordering takeout food, taking a cab, hiring household help, or paying someone to just run an error or do some work for you, they were a lot happier than those who didn't. Now, it's possible that people who can afford time-saving help are happier to begin with. But in another experiment, Canadians were given $80 over two weekends and told to spend it on material items or time-saving purchases. The time-savers had less time-related stress and a bigger increase in well-being. But even very wealthy people can sometimes feel reluctant or guilty about the indulgence of spending money on maids, messengers, or other helpers. But do it anyway if you can afford it. Giving yourself the gift of more time, if you can afford it, is a quick and convenient way to a happier life. And that's the truth. Now, the final thing I want to talk about today is a happy life. Being kind to others is a proven path towards happiness. And don't forget to be kind to yourself as well. Now, to start off, you got to be generous. Generosity makes people happier. As we noted earlier, generosity is one of the six variables found to consistently influence happiness in the World Happiness Report. And several studies have found that people who had behaved generously were happier compared to people who made selfish decisions. In fact, just thinking about being generous and kind triggers a happiness reaction in our brains. So, in a series of experiments in New Zealand, around 50 people were promised 25 cis francs every week for four weeks. That's about $25 a week in Canadian dollars. Half the people were told to spend the money on themselves. The other half was instructed to spend the money on someone they knew. The groups went through a series of exercises, making decisions about how much money they were to give away in various scenarios. While the study subjects were making these, well, sorry, subjects were making these decisions, the scientists were measuring brain activity in the parts of the brain where generosity, happiness, and decision-making are processed. The researchers found that simply promising to be generous activated neural changes related to happiness. And the more generous uh, people were happier overall than those who behaved more selfishly. The lesson is obvious. If you're feeling blue, if you're not happy, be generous with your money, your time, and resources. You'll be glad you did. Next thing is about volunteering. And everyone knows, oh, you know, volunteering is something to help the community. It's a good thing. Everyone, you know, it's something to benefit our society. To talk more to what volunteering is, volunteering is linked to health benefits like low blood pressure and decreased mortality rates. We also know that volunteering builds your resilience, the ability to bounce back from trauma, grief, and other small setbacks, small or big setbacks in life. A University of Exeter study found that volunteering is essentially a prescription for happiness that can prolong your life and make your years on Earth better in many ways. After reviewing around 40 studies on volunteerism, the researchers found that volunteering was associated with less depression, 
more life satisfaction, and greater well-being. And five large studies of volunteerism. Volunteers have a 22% lower mortality rate than the study period. Now, this might seem like, oh, what, what does volunteering have to do with you know, blood pressure and mortality rates? Of course, it's possible that happier people are simply more likely to volunteer. But overall, the scientific evidence supports a strong link between giving and happiness. And that includes giving your time to others. You know, if you help people, I guarantee you, you will not be sad. You will be happier than you are sad. Now, my next tip is to give yourself a break. Do you treat yourself as well as you treat your family and friends? That simple question is the basis for a burgeoning new area of psychological research called self-compassion. How kindly people view themselves. People who find it easy to be supportive and understanding to others, as it turns out, often score surprisingly low on the self-compassion test, berating themselves for perceived failures like being overweight or not exercising. But I think it's time to give yourself a break and work on self-compassion. People who often score high on tests of self-compassion have less depression and anxiety and tend to be happier and more optimistic. Why do you, if you treat other people like like if you treat other people happy, that being your family, friends, or even like strangers, what about yourself? You know, sometimes you live for yourself and if you want to be happy, if you want to live a life where you want to do what you want, you want to be happy, you have to take care of yourself. Give yourself a break. Don't don't take failures to be failures. Oh, something I messed up. Oh, everyone's better than me. That's not true. Everyone has their mistakes. Nobody is perfect. I know that's cliche. But you see all these uh, famous, like, really rich people, people on Instagram, social media, posing all their, oh, rich diamonds, their cars. Those are just people hiding their insecurities. If they were confident and they believed in themselves, they wouldn't have to post to show everyone, you know, what they have. It's... If they're they're not living for themselves, they're living for everyone else. So, you know, treat yourself as the same level or even higher than everyone else you know, everyone else in the world, because the the real life situation, the actual thing is, they're not better than you. Everyone is unique. Everyone makes fails, failures. Just just treat yourself better. To go into some um. Facts. Kristen Nirf, a University of Texas psychologist, uh, also a famous author of the book Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. You can go check that out. They say Dr. Neff has developed a self-compassion scale to help people measure their own levels of compassion for themselves. Now, you can take this mini test to see if you're hard on yourself or more likely to give yourself a break. Use a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 being less likely to feel that way and 5 being very likely to feel that way. Now, first question. I'm disapproving and judgmental about my flaws and inadequacies. When I'm feeling down, I tend to obsess and fixate on everything that's wrong. When I fail something important to me, I become consumed by feelings of inadequacy. When times are really difficult, I tend to be rough on myself. When I see aspects of myself that I don't like, I get down on myself. When things are going badly for me, I see the difficulties as a part of life that everyone goes through. When something upsets me, I try to keep my emotions in balance. When something painful happens, I try to take a balanced view of the situation. When I fail at something important to me, I try to keep things in perspective. I'm tolerant of my own flaws and inadequacies. Now, you could 
replay this podcast from the the beginning of those questions and really like think about it go over it with yourself you know go over it on a one scale of one to five and see how you did it's pretty obvious that if you score high on the first five questions and low on the rest you're pretty tough on yourself if your higher scores were in questions six to ten then you're doing a pretty good job of practicing self-compassion for those low on the self-compassion scale Dr. Neff suggests a set of exercises, like writing yourself a letter of support, just as you might a friend if you are concerned about or family. Listen, uh, listing your best and worst traits, reminding some yourself that nobody is perfect, and thinking of steps you might take to help you feel better about yourself are also recommended. Other exercises like meditation, like we talked about earlier, and compassion breaks, which involve repeating mantras like, I'm gonna be kind to myself in this moment. I'm gonna wake up in the morning, and I'm going to give myself a compliment. I'm going to write something that I'm good at. I'm going to write something that uh, I'm unique, that some of my friends don't know how to do. And I, I'm going to think that I'm kind. I'm the best person um, in in my current moment. And nobody's perfect. Try that every morning or when you come home from school or work or wherever else. Dr. Neff reminds us that it takes practice to be nice to yourself. The problem is that it's hard to unlearn habits of a lifetime, she said. People have to actively and consciously develop the habit of self-compassion. That's basically it for this episode. To conclude, we talked about you know how to be happy in regards to the mind, work, and money, and life. And I hope this really helped you. You took some of my steps. Feel free to uh, scroll back on some segments of this where you want to hear it again you know, understand it a bit more, but they really helped me. They helped a lot of people and I hope they really help you be happy and live the best life possible that you want for yourself. And if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to email me. I'm always open to hear any of your um, inquiries or questions about this. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in and I'll see you next time on the podcast. Bye.